Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are you excited? I think I think uh, I am just very excited at what's going on at River Community Church. I've been excited getting to meet all of you. I've been excited seeing the willingness in this church to get involved, to share the gospel, to build community with one another. I'm excited about the new Sunday school classes that we're offering this upcoming next week. One more new thing, October 1st, new classes. And I want to take this moment right now just to encourage you, as people who love the Word, as people who want to grow in Christ, not to neglect that opportunity of adult education, the Sunday school hour that we have here at River Community Church. We have two classes. I think they're both going to be excellent. And I look forward to seeing a lot of new faces next week. Okay? Do I need to peek? Do I need to come in? I might. All right. Well, we are here at the very last of our first series called First Things. The idea of this series has been to ground us on what is most essential, which is absolutely non-negotiable, about who we are as River Community Church. These are the five solas of the Reformation, which were not discovered in the, which were not created in the Reformation, but rediscovered because they are from the Scriptures. What the five solas of the gospel do is make sure that in everything we are gospel-centered. Because if we lose the gospel, we drift off into obscurity and we become not the hope that the world needs. And so we have made this series after the image of a constitution so that you recognize that this is not only where we start, but these things govern us all the way. If we ever depart from the solas of the gospel, we have left our constitutional grounding and must repent immediately. So we are at the very end of our solas, which is to God alone be the glory or sola deo gloria, as, some, as it is heard in the Latin. And as we think about this final sola, which is the sum of all the other solas, it gives us an opportunity to reflect personally on the gospel that we believe. Maybe even more on the motive for why we believe in the gospel. Let me ask you, why do you want the gospel? Why do you want the gospel? Why do we offer the gospel? Is the reason that we want the gospel because, oh my I don't want to go to hell. Is the reason that we want the gospel because we want to go to heaven? Is the reason that we want the gospel because we want forgiveness for our sins? Or is it because we want hope and encouragement in, a, in our day-to-day life? All of those are great answers. All of those are true of the gospel. These are good things, but are they all? 
Is that all that we want when we come to the gospel? These ends, if they are all that we want, look a lot like treating the gospel as an insurance policy. They cover us. They take care of the risks. They give us the coverage that we need. And once we have that insurance policy, it becomes very easy to say, all right, I've got that taken care of. After all, who goes back to visit their insurance agent week after week once they have their policy? You see, if, if all the gospel is, if all we want from the gospel is to cover us from, from the moment we die onward, then the idea of worshiping and fellowshipping, well, that seems like a lot of time. And that may not be all that necessary after all. And in fact, if we treat the gospel as an insurance policy, we recognize no one really wants insurance. You just have to have insurance. It's necessary for your car, for your house. We have it because we need it. But let's be honest, we drop it immediately if we felt like we didn't need it. We'd put that money back in our pockets for something else. This seems, I think, to be perhaps the story of what's going on with the gospel in America today. The reasons that we have preached for why you need the gospel are becoming increasingly dismissed because they are seen as less needed than they were in previous generations. America doesn't want heaven when they die. They want heaven right now. Forgiveness only matters if you believe there is right and wrong. Hope? Hope is for losers. We are people that get, the good, that, that, that get it done. If you want a good life, you go out and you take it for yourself. Hell? I'm kind of doubtful about hell. But just in case, I'll give you, I believe in Jesus. I'll put that in my back pocket, and we'll go on. Many adapt the gospel to this new mindset. Instead of heaven, some try and make the gospel the key to a wonderful life or living your best life now. Instead of forgiveness, we talk about the gospel as self-improvement. Instead of hope, we talk about action. You join us and we'll beat the enemies on the far left or the far right. We'll win our agenda right here, right now. We are not going to lose. And hell? Well, many in the church would rather not talk about hell too. So why do we want the gospel? This is something to personally examine. Why do I want the gospel? What is the ultimate end that I am seeking to fulfill to find in the gospel? That question will go to the very bottom of your soul. And it will tell you your deepest need. As we look at the above list, we see that the gospel seems to be wanted or not wanted based on one common denominator. The self. The self. And if that is the common denominator, if that is the main thing that the gospel is about, is about improving yourself or taking care of yourself, we shouldn't be surprised that many choose against it. Because the world, every commercial, is offering you something to fill that need. 
And some of those do better than others. The joy of the gospel or a jet ski. Sometimes a jet ski looks a little more fun. The problem is that the Bible does not teach that the chief end of man is himself. The Bible teaches that the chief end of man and of all things is God's glory. The primary objective of the gospel then is to glorify God. The reformers rediscovered this and they encapsulated it in the slogan of Sola Dea Gloria or to God alone be the glory. And if I were to confess what I see missing most in the church today, it is that the glory of God is missing in so much of our preaching and so much of our evangelizing. It is the primary reason that the gospel preached today has such little impact. The world can find itself substitutes for all of its felt needs, but only the gospel truly connects it to what we were made for, to glorify God alone. Thus we must revive and center ourselves on sola deo gloria. Today we are looking at the three beautiful truths that give God all the glory. And let it become the place where we stand and do not step away from. Sola Dea Gloria is abundantly supported by the scriptures. But Paul's climactic statement in Romans 11 is perhaps the pinnacle of them all. He has just completed presenting the gospel of salvation by faith alone. In Christ alone. All because of God's grace alone. And he comes to the end and he says these words which are nothing but praise, an outburst of joy at the God who so wondrously saved his people. In this passage, we will find the three beautiful truths that gives all the glory to God. Let's look at these first of, the first of these three truths. First, the first beautiful truth that we see in this text is that God alone exhausts all glory. God alone exhausts all glory. And we see this in verses 33, 34, and 35. God's greatness, Paul shows us, is beyond finding out. Now imagine who has broken into this passage. It's the Apostle Paul. Perhaps the most brilliant mind and certainly one who is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is there writing God's words. And even though he is beautifully brilliant, and even though he is filled with the Holy Spirit and inspired to write, he himself has come to a place where the words fail. He has come to the point in the gospel that is ineffable. And he says it goes further than I can articulate. It goes further than I can explain. It is more beautiful than words can ever do justice to. And he cries out, Oh, the depths, the depths of this gospel. The idea of that is an, is an abyss that goes down. And Paul 
has the plumb line that has gone down further than anyone else. He has dropped it mile after mile after mile into the beautiful well of God's grace. And he has run out of rope. And it goes all that much further. He is saying, oh, the depths, the unplumbable depths of God's grace, of God's greatness. And so he erupts into praise as he finds that his end comes so far short of explaining the great end of God's glory. It is like when you pull yourself up over the the ledge and you get your first look at the Grand Canyon. Have you seen that? Have you had that experience? You come up all these dusty roads, you can't see anything, and then all of a sudden you come through the trees, and for miles and miles there are these carved rocks and deep cliffs and plummeting uh, lines all over the place, and you just go speechless. Your heart just breaks into glory. And that is where Paul is. It is like he is standing at the Grand Canyon, except the Grand Canyon is too small. He bursts into three attributes that highlight God's greatness. He says, his riches. His riches. He contemplates the riches of Christ that we have found in the gospel, the riches of God. He says, all the riches of Christ are ours by grace. All the riches. Think again upon Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 from last week, where Paul says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The coming ages, meaning after all time has been exhausted and we dip into another age and go through all of that age and then dip into another age and then another age after that, after we go through all the ages the mind can contemplate and there are more ages after that, he says even at the end of all of that, the riches of God's grace remain unmeasured. They are immeasurable because they are infinite. And all of those riches are ours in our union to Christ. So Paul asks this question, who can give a gift that he might repay? He is quoting from that magnificent moment where God meets Job and God reminds Job that I am God and you are not. And one of the things that makes him God is that he has everything. His riches are inexhaustible and there is nothing that we could possibly give to God. There is nothing we could claim upon God that he would ever have to repay because he is the creator of all things and in him is all things. And so Paul is bringing this question to us so that we can say with him, no one, no one can give God a gift which he must repay because there is nothing God lacks. So when we proclaim sola Deo Gloria, we are saying it is all by grace alone and we receive it only by faith alone. 
The reason that it ends with 100% of God's glory is because it starts 100% from God's grace. Second, he exclaims, his wisdom, his wisdom, only God's wisdom could give us this gospel. This gospel is this. The most horrendous, torturous execution device ever created, ever imagined. The place where all hopes are crushed. Where the stench of death is its ultimate power. God turned that device, the cross, into the place of hope, of good news, of salvation. The greatest evil was turned in God's perfect wisdom into the place of eternal salvation. That is God's wisdom. And it makes a fool out of all of us. It makes us stupefied. And so Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given an idea to God? No one. There isn't a thought, no matter how brilliant or refined or carefully considered, that we could give to God and he would say, well, that is fascinating. Because he has all wisdom. And there is no counsel that we can give him that impresses him. His gospel proceeds from his perfect wisdom. And third, Paul proclaims his knowledge. His knowledge. Oh, the depths of his knowledge. His plans proceed from his perfect knowledge. There isn't some part about the gospel that he didn't think of. There isn't some outcome of the gospel that surprises him. He knows all things perfectly, and the gospel proceeds from that perfect knowledge. And so Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. What he is saying is that when our brilliance goes to its fullest limit, searching the goodness of God, searching the revelation of God, we will eventually come to where Paul is, and that is complete silence. It's not because we can't comprehend God, but he goes so far what we can ever, ever understand. Because he is infinite in knowledge. I think of Isaiah's words in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Even the angels marvel at this gospel. Peter shares this in his first epistle, the 12th verse of the first chapter. It was revealed to them, the angels, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. 
the angels of heaven spend their time in ceaseless fascination and wonder at what God has done through Jesus Christ in saving us. And the angels have had a huge head start. They've been at it for ages and ages. And they are doing it without any contamination of sin in their mind. They have perfect insight. They are in the presence of God. They know the mysteries of God better than any creature. And they are here longing to look because there's more. There's more to this good news than I can take in. And that's the same gospel that Paul is trying to preach right here. Thus we come in in God's glory to recognize that we have Scripture alone because this knowledge can only come by the revelation of the one who has perfect knowledge. We see that glory belongs to God alone as we look at these, these verses. To see the fullness of glory is to see God alone. There isn't something glorious that is beyond God or above God. To see all glory is to see God. He alone exhausts all glory. He is the king of glory. And this infinite greatness of God that we are plumbing, that is his glory. He is so deep and so rich and so wise and so full of knowledge that it goes on forever. His greatness, his infiniteness is his glory. Now some, when we talk about the glory of God and the fact that the gospel ends with God's glory, respond with, that sounds so selfish. If the ultimate end of the gospel is so that God can get praise and glory, doesn't that mean that the ultimate end of the gospel is the epitome of selfishness? And isn't selfishness by definition sinful and wrong? To seek glory for ourselves is wrong. Why would that not also be true of God? Well, the main distinction there and the main error in that thinking is that we have confused the creator and the creature. Paul is making clear here, I am not the creator. He goes so far beyond me. He is perfection. And if a creature were to say, all glory belongs to me, or I am going to pursue all glory for myself, then he is taking the place of God. The reason that God rightfully claims all glory is because God rightfully is the ultimate, the one who all glory belongs to. When God is not glorified, something that is not God becomes glorified. And that means to glorify anything but God is to rob God of what he rightfully deserves. We can see sin's folly and ugliness by this very fact. Because it is man's fallen nature to substitute an inferior glory for God. 
Listen to what Paul says in the beginning of this letter. Romans chapter 1, he says, Claiming to be wise, they, all humanity, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see what happens. When all glory does not go to God, we have exchanged God's glory for something that is not God. And when we give our praise, our time, our energy to that thing, we make it God. But what happens when we make something that is not God, God? Can that thing fully delight us, fully satisfy us? fully reveal to us all that we are made to be? Absolutely not. When we give glory to anything but God, we debase ourselves. We decrease ourselves. Think about various sins and what they really do. Pornography. Pornography. If we, if we give all of our desires and our excitement to pornography... It rots your ability to love the image of God in other people. They become objects. They become ends to a mean. They become simply for your pleasure. The idea of putting glory in sex is to make people into objects. And it's to deny your ability to truly know one another. There is a prison that comes upon us when we pursue something with glory that does not deserve that glory. The sadness when we do not pursue God's glory alone is that we shrink. We become something inferior than what God has made us to be, which is image bearers of him. So that's the first one. God alone exhausts all glory, but second... We see that all things exist for God's glory. Here, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, as we hear this uh, doxology, this word of praise, we should hear those same words having also been used for Christ in our first sermon. When When we looked at Christ alone, we looked at these words from Colossians where Paul says of Christ, For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. All the glory of God also belongs to Christ. Because once again, the glory of Christ is the glory of God. Our Savior is one and the same. He is God. So when we proclaim sola dea gloria, we are proclaiming Christ alone. We cannot proclaim proclaim anyone but Christ alone and give all the glory to God. When, When Paul tells us all things exist for God's glory, 
He's reminding us that creation and redemption are entirely free acts of God. They were done out of his fullness, not out of his deficiency. One of the biggest lies is the idea that God created all things so that he had someone to show his love to or to receive love from. But as we recognize that, the, that God exists in a trinity, all love, all glory, all goodness, all beauty is perfectly fulfilled within God. The love that the Father receives from the Son is so complete and perfect, there is nothing about the love from this world that he needs. He does not create because he has a deficiency to fulfill. He creates because the fullness of his glory makes it a joy to share that glory, to display that glory, to allow others to receive fullness from his glory. It is out of his freedom and out of his fullness that God creates. God gets the glory for being the creator of all things. That's what it means from him. God is the creator of everything, material and immaterial. Nothing exists apart or before him. Second, we see that God exists, or God gets the glory for being the sustainer of all things. Through him, there isn't a moment that goes on in this world, anywhere in the whole cosmos, that is not sustained by God's will. All things are sustained and governed by him. Nothing exists or happens apart from his sovereign will. As Paul says in Ephesians, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that's a verse worthy of a sermon all of all its own. But the fact of the matter is all things exist and continue to exist because they exist for God. And the moment that God desires for them not to exist, they cease to exist. You might say, well, does that even include things that are, that are bad? And how, how could that possibly be true? And we see time and time again in Scripture the way God uses what is intended for evil and brings goodness and glory out of it. The story of Joseph being sold into slavery being thought dead, being a prisoner, being accused of adultery, living in, in the squalor of a prison for perhaps two decades was all part of God's plan to save his brothers, to bring them into uh, Egypt where they would find plenty. And so we recognize with Joseph at the end that though the brothers had intended all of this to Joseph for evil, God intended it for good. What we have with God is one who is able to bring glory out of even the evil of the cross. And so when we consider that and recognize that, we say, yes, I don't know how, but all things will bring God glory. Because God, with his perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom, has determined it will be so. Finally, we see that God gets the glory because all things exist for him. All things are to him, Paul says. All things exist for God's glory, even the wicked to glorify God in his judgment. And here we look at some of the more challenging words in the book of Romans from the ninth chapter. 
where Paul says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even the wicked, even the sinfulness, even the unrepentant will eventually bring glory to God because they will demonstrate the righteousness of his judgment. Third, all things end in God's glory. To God be the glory forever. Amen. To God be the glory forever. Amen. This is the end for which all history is headed. There will become a time where there is no history, but there is God, and what will be happening is he will be receiving glory. And it will go on for eternity. Some, as we saw in that previous verse from Romans 9, will bring glory to God through their praise. Others will bring glory to God through their judgment. Those are the two places that we can land. Either we glorify God by his judgment, or we glorify God by his grace. This verse, to God be the glory forever, amen, is not simply a declaration of what will be, but it is also a call upon us to be glorifiers of God. The word glory, when it's in the Hebrew, translates the word kabod, which stands for weightiness, hefty. The idea of God's glory is that it gets the weight. In Greek, the word is doxa, which is praise. And so the question is, we think about the fact that all things end in God's glory, that glory is where everything will end. Glory to God is right now, as we look at our lives, as we look at what we do, what we spend our time with, what gets the weight? Does God's glory get the weight in your recreation? Does God's glory get the weight in your relationships? Does God's glory get the weight in your thought life? Does God's glory get the weight in your actions? Does he tip the scales and says, I do this or I don't do this because of the glory of God? If not, in your heart is the exchange of God's glory for something else. What does your life celebrate? What does your life praise? What does your life testify? You have to be part of this. Is it some pleasure? Is it your workplace? Is it your family, or is it God's glory? I expect you're with me, that as you look at your heart, you recognize God's glory is not getting the weight, and God's glory is not getting the celebration and the praise of my entire life. And if we recognize that, then we have to take with great seriousness what Paul says In Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of God. Your heart, your desires, your passions that get the weight, that get the praise of your heart, disqualify you from standing before God and worshiping him in his glory. You fall short. And so if it were simply your heart, your will, you will give God glory by judgment. There is no option B. We fall woefully short of it. We do not belong with the glorifiers, but we belong with the judged. Here is the the amazing thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory was crucified. The Lord of glory became the child of wrath. The Lord of glory became the one who suffered the judgment for all the idols of our heart. The Lord of glory died for us that we might share with him heavenly glory. As Jesus was going to the cross, he prayed to his father his most intimate wish. He said, Father, I desire that they, those who believe in me also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Even more, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying his desire for you is to share with him the greatest thing about him, which is his glory. He wants you to experience that which cannot be rivaled, that which is infinite in its beauty, that which will take an eternity to measure and remain immeasurable. He says, I die. I give my life. I bleed. I suffer. I go through the darkness of wrath that they who believe in me, who fall short of your glory, may receive the Lord of glory and be with the Lord of glory that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. What a beautiful gospel. What thing can the world offer that is more beautiful and splendid than the fact that you behold the Lord of glory who sacrificed himself on a cross because you fall short of glory? How can this gospel become mundane in our life? How can it fit on the shelf Monday through Saturday? The Lord of glory has died to bring you into his presence as a son and daughter of glory. 
God's glory is not selfish ultimately. It is self-giving. The greatest gift of the gospel is to get to behold, worship, and enjoy the God of all glory who is the God that so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life forever. To God be the glory forever. Do you want to know why heaven is eternal, why God gives us everlasting life? Because anything less than that would fail to wonder at his glory. We need an infinite amount of time to enjoy his infinite glory. It will take us endless ages to receive and reflect all the glory of God. We do not have a place for a gift this large. That is why God must make all things new. And you can be a part of that new creation which will glorify God and receive God's glory for all time. So the three beautiful truths that give God all the glory, he exists, he exhausts all glory, he, all things exist for God's glory, and all things end in God's glory. Let me ask you again, why do you want the gospel. If the reason that we want the gospel is primarily to accomplish some end in ourselves, it will lose its luster, and our witness will become weak at best. However, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The gospel is the gift of the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory is what we receive in the gospel. Does the gospel fill you with worship? When we grasp this, how can we not be consumed with anything less but the worship of him and the declaring of his excellencies? The the Westminster Shorter Catechism nails it. The summation of the Reformation. What is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now you may be here having pursued yourself as your chief end for years. However, I can tell you, you have a deep emptiness. You have a deep, unfulfilling hole. And you know it. You find it at night. You find it when you wake up in the morning. And you try to chase it away with worldly distractions. You have found fulfillment constantly elude you. There is a sense of pointlessness and despair that you are constantly fighting away. What's the point? Is at the bottom of your thoughts. 
This is because you have substituted your chief end to glorify God and enjoy him for something else. And that something else is crushing you. And eventually it will kill you. And finally, it will separate you eternally from God. Today, though, the good news is offered today. Today, the purpose you were created and your heart longs for has been made available. The Lord of glory invites you into a personal relationship with him. He will take all your emptiness. He will take all your idols. He will take all your sins and crush them and remove them as far as the east is from the west. He has given you everything by his grace. And he offers you the riches of eternity where you will experience all his blessings and know his full splendor and find the fullness of your heart overflowing. Call upon the Lord of glory and he will bring you into his glory. Amen.